Climbing a 3,000-foot sheer granite rock face without a rope could be an analogy for making a documentary feature film. It's also the subject of Free Solo, this year's Oscar-winning feature-length documentary about climber Alex Hanold's first-ever successful free solo climb of the freerider route up the face of Yosemite's El Capitan. In documentaries, unlike a scripted feature film, you have no control over exactly where the story will take you, how the main characters will change over time, or if new characters will enter the story upending everything you anticipated. But those unknowns, even in the face of meticulous preparation, talent, and teamwork, at a certain point, can only be met with ingenuity and instincts. And this embrace of moving forward into the unknown is where the directors, producers, and crew of Free Solo met Alex Hanold on common ground. The New York-based team followed Alex for two years, shooting over 700 hours of footage, and in response, the world gave Free Solo the widest and longest-running theatrical release of any documentary of 2018. Following is my conversation with director and producer Chai Vassarheli, picture editor Bob Eisenhart, sound supervisor Deborah Wallach, and re-recording mixers Tom Fleischman and Rick Schnupp. Here, picture editor Bob Eisenhart and director Chai Vassarheli describe some challenges in the edit working with incoming footage of climber Alex Honnold and describing how his meeting Sonny McCandless completely upended the story in ways they could have never anticipated. I started editing, he hadn't made, he was six months away from making the climb. So we were either making a movie about a guy who successfully climbs or decides not to bother doing it or dies trying, you know, uh, we didn't know. I mean, you really like the extroverts, you know, when you're shooting because you can get a lot out of them. And, and here is a guy who so controls his emotions <coughs> that he's able to hang 3,000 feet in the air by his fingertips. And so that's just the opposite of kind of what you usually get, you know. He's not going to show his emotions. You're not going to understand what he's thinking and feeling. But it was also like we were making a film initially about just a guy who was alone in a van. And we weren't anticipating that he was going to fall in love with this amazing woman right. and set in front of our cameras. And suddenly there'd be two challenges. Can he climb the mountain and be in this relationship? Like, you know, yeah. it got a lot richer in some way. Well, thank God that Sonny shut up. We were able to see him through her in a way that we wouldn't have been able to. Um, but the, the, you could see that if you followed this and developed that thread, I mean, it's all about developing mm -hmm. the idea, mm -hmm. that it, it would work to explain who Alex was and kind of what the challenges of being Alex is, as well as being able to conquer the mountain. You know, to her credit, I mean, it was very difficult. I couldn't, I could never imagine myself walking into this situation. But it was a testament to how much these two people were attracted to each other. It was yeah. like, I mean, they have like a natural, I don't know, chemistry that you, is just you feel when mm. you're around them. Um, and for a guy who's like pretty understated, that's quite surprising. Mm -hmm. And she has a certain emotional intelligence that she's able to make him or talk about feelings and push back on him. You know, and and express herself, but also try to love him for who he is. So it was, it was really quite interesting. Um, and it, it shifted. So first we were like, I don't know, what happens if, you know, this only lasts a few weeks? What are we going to do? The guy's got to climb the mountain. <laughs> what are we going to do? And meanwhile, you can never say this stuff out loud, right? right. No. I mean, it's not a role to say it, but we're like, ooh, what's going to happen? 
And then they start really getting, you know, together. And they're like, oh, no, maybe he actually won't climb the mountain anymore because he's falling in love with this woman. This is not great for us either. Yeah, get her out. No. And then towards the end, it was like, oh, my goodness, she cannot dump him. Like, what are we going to do if she leaves him? <laughs> because he would, he would have... It would have not been a nice day for Alex. Yeah. I mean, he really, the two of them are very much in love. They're still together. They'll probably be life partners. And it's, you know, but just for us, really, who knew that we'd suddenly see Alex falling in love in front of our cameras and that that's how he would emotionally evolve, you know, and like we just never anticipated it. One of the most telling scenes in Free Solo takes place between Alex and Sonny in his van when she asks him if he feels any obligation to her as someone who cares about him not to risk his life. That scene, and much of the film was shot in cinema verite style, observational shooting style invented in the 1960s, when Robert Drew, Ricky Leacock, D.A. Pennebaker, and David and Albert Mazels engineered the mobile cameras that made a roaming shoot possible. Consequently, in working with cinema verite, the filmmakers must allow for scenes such as the one described previously to develop organically. In the case of Free Solo, shooting cinema verite resulted in approximately 700 hours of footage. Here, picture editor Bob Eisenhart talks about his process to organize the footage into an emotionally compelling feature film. In a verite film, you just have to shoot. You have to hang in there because, you know, there's an hour and a half conversation between Sonny and Alex. and. You know, there's a minute here and a minute there and a minute somewhere else that together gives you a bit of story, allows you to advance the story a little bit, and gives you a development in their emotional relationship. But you need that kind of hour and a half of talking to get those little gems and then string those together in a way that works with the next scene that you can possibly string together. And you can kind of see this, you know, I mean, my process is to kind of lay this out ahead of time. After I've seen all the dailies and we've selected and we've looked at the selects together, then you can kind of figure out, okay, this looks like where it's going. And this is the elements we can use to get us there. So I, I make scene cards and kind of lay it out on the wall. So you can kind of see the flow of the, of the scenes. And you, you know, eventually that collapses. Eventually, you don't have to look at the board anymore. But until that time, it gives you a roadmap for where you hope to be able to get. And then there's Bob's, like, big stack of what did not end up on the board. <laughs> all color-coordinated. I mean, it's quite, it, but it's like that stack you never want to look at because you're like, did we miss something that's in there? Oh, God. Hopefully, you double back at yeah, some no, point. He always, always doubles yeah, back. Shuffle through like, the cards yeah. again. Well, with the love story, I was wondering because that happened midway in the shoot, or at some point after you had started, mm -hmm. I wondered if you went back and said, oh, let's tease that out a little bit in the beginning of the film. Well, um, where he was in the beginning of the film was uh, online dating. You know, so we had a little bit of that, and he's talking a little bit about the girlfriend just in the opening. It's enough to kind of plant the seed about, you know, um, I live in a van, you know, it's t tough to have a girlfriend. You know, so you can plant those seeds. You don't need too much in the beginning, which is good because we didn't have too much in the beginning. Um, she came in a ways in. Um, it was the same problem with the crew. You know, the crew became a whole other character in this thing, and it, they were very important to kind of understand what the challenges were and and what he, what he had to do for each part. To, I mean, when Jimmy 
first heard that Alex was going to, they were going to make a film about just this character, Alex, you know, and his climbs. And Alex said, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it big, and I want to do El Cap. And Chai thought that was a great idea. Jibby freaked out. I mean, because he knows what it means. I'm not a climber. <laughs> and so, and, and they backed off, actually, for a while, because you had to kind of assess what your level of involvement would be and how much you how much pressure you would bring to bear on the person you know would he have to would he feel obliged to do certain things that he shouldn't be doing you know so there was always that question of uh, you know is the observer going to affect the action too much sure. um, and so that was a very real story right from the get-go um, unfortunately there wasn't a whole lot of crew being shot in the very beginning so again it was trying to find those moments that would work at the beginning to set that story up and get it rolling. You know, from the very premise, there was an, there was an ethical question at the heart of it, which yeah. also got to the, you know, the central question of the film itself, is that by observing and filming Alex, by having us there, is he more likely to fall? Mm -hmm. And we had to be able to live with that, and we mm -hmm. lived with that pressure. You know, we made peace with it. We decided, one, that we believed Alex has chosen to live this life, he lives every day with purpose. This is the life he wants to live. Mm -hmm. This is the life he thinks is worth living. That said, we trusted him in his judgment that he wouldn't do something if he felt uncomfortable. And we also trusted our own filmmaking capacity not to get in his way. Yeah. Um, but it was ter I mean, um, it was terrifying. It was, a, it was emotionally very hard on the crew and everyone involved before yeah. he climbed for two years. It was also, you know, challenging because... Here's a person whose range of emotions is quite limited. Like, Alex is limited emotionally. It's just the way he is, what he says. You know, like, I feel like about this much, and most people feel a lot more. And you don't want to mess with that in some way, mm -hmm. because that's clearly why he's able to do what he does in many ways. We had a difficult time getting that off the ground, the, 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 uh, the film filmmaker's involvement. It was either too much or too little. I mean, just the balance of that was very tricky to get going. Mm -hmm. And that was probably true also of the love story. The balance was very tricky. Yeah, yeah, right? we went way overboard yes. a couple times. <laughs> I mean, there are versions of the film. I mean, it's the same thing. It's all about degree, right? And yeah, there was like more than you wanted to know sometimes. You know, you were just too, you forgot about the climbing. And it was just about these two people in a van. The Casanova yeah. version. Of yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you have to say, oh, you remember what we're here for, right? It's the guy's going to do this climb. So that balance, <laughs> that balance is tricky, and that's mm -hmm. what you're always kind of juggling. Mm -hmm. And pacing, too. I mean, after looking at the footage for so many days or months, you're used to it, and you for, you know, you're, like, ready to get through it. And... Where do you go? Do you just go into your own breath, or how do you... I, I think you have to remember your initial reaction to the footage. Because a year later, a year and a half later, you don't, you know, it's... I mean, we had to look at each other in the middle of the cut and say, this is working, right? I mean, <laughs> it's the final climb, and we had to, like, double-check, right? Um, I mean, this is how it felt to us the first time. So you have to kind of remember that and build on those moments. Um, but you're not feeling... Until you get with an audience again. Uh, then and it's and when the film gets to a point where the audience can react properly to it, I mean it's not so ragged that you don't understand what the guy's doing. We had those screenings. Yeah. But I, I always wonder if, and we've talked about this before, if, if somehow we became so immune 
like to the climb itself. It was like we had watched this stuff so many times that it was like, oh, great, he's climbing again. <laughs> and it ma- I think it probably forced us to really lean into the story part of it mm. and make sure that like people like my mother, who doesn't even know what a mountain is, could follow the sequence of the climb, like build it and so mm. that people who are outside of this world could be invested. Yeah. And... But I, it was just investing in that, that suddenly when we showed it to audiences, we were like, oh, no, maybe it's too scary. Like, we were totally desensitized to how just how tense watching him up on that rock would be. Yeah. Because we lived with it for so long. And then, uh, conversely, y- you were up on the mountain for so long. I mean, whatever happened to the girl? You know, where, where is Sonny? You know? And so that balance was really important. And logistically, I mean, this thing was bigger and badder than anything— we'd ever shot. And, you know, we were very reluctant to make another quote-unquote climbing film after Meru. Meru seemed something very hard to follow, especially because it was so personal, as it was Jimmy's personal story. But Alex, this is a story of a really geeky kid who was scared of everything and who teaches himself step by step with vision and determination to overcome his fears. And that, for us, was inspiring and felt like it was a story that would speak beyond just the idea of climbing. Because Jimmy, um, who's my directing partner and producing partner, and also we are married, um, is a professional athlete and a professional climber, as well as a professional photographer and filmmaker. Alex and Jimmy have known each other for many, many years. I think Jimmy was with Alex on Alex's first international expedition that was probably 12 years ago, 13 years ago. So that relationship was there, and they had also had a lot of experience filming together on various commercial jobs. Mm. And they're just old friends. And I think Jimmy's really seen Alex kind of grow up. I mean, he met Alex when Alex was probably 20 or younger. So that relationship was there. And they'd also had a lot of experience filming together on various commercial jobs. Mm. You know, traditionally, mountain shoots would happen. You know, Meru, for example, is about 18 to 20 days that they're up in the mountain. There are three guys. It's very, very dangerous but mm-hmm. here we had like 90 days in the mountains with five or six guys like the exposure was big larger mm-hmm. not just for Alex it was for every member of our crew and there are you know basically six guys in the world who can film in those conditions and they're the six people who worked on this film oh my God. because you're going to be a professional climber like a top professional climber as well as as a let's hope excellent cinematographer right and you have to there's no craft services there's no support you're cha- you're carrying your own lunch your own water and your extra lenses and your batteries and your cards and you're out there for 14 hours at a time oh my god and the rope can't get in the way and you've got you can't shoot the other guy like you can't the other guy can't get in your shot so it's right. all about like they're trained not to catch each other in their shots so it, it was really complicated. It was it was kind of almost like a ballet. Like the whole thing had to be choreographed, mm. um, and we had to plan those shots and practice those shots with Alex. So also that there would be no surprises for him. He was kind of expecting there'd be a guy over there. If he heard something, he knew that was Mikey over there. Mm-hmm. So logistically, it was really complicated. Do you remember a moment where the edit informed the shoot? Like, hey, can you All guys? The All the time. Yeah. I mean, I think actually it was one of the most. I learned something on and Free Solo, which was we never before could afford the idea of editing and shooting at the same time because it's expensive. It's hard. Like, yeah. um, And normally, or at least I had come from this world where you just go off and shoot something and then you bring back your mess and you're like, here, Bob, pick up my mess. Um, but this, it was really valuable to be editing at the same time because it did help us focus on things that were interesting that you couldn't necessarily see when you were in the field. 
um, having this objective mm. set of eyes was really important. And this also helped in, in explaining what the, what the technique was and what the challenges were on each of these things. Because we went back several times to the boulder problem. You see he does it again and again. And part of it was to try to understand what he had to do. So it got shot in many different ways. So you could see each move. The whole idea is that you set it up in the second act there so you don't have to say a word in the third act. You just, you already, everybody knows what he has to do. And how did you know when you needed to spell things out for the audience, which I thought was also handled really, really well? <laughs> you know, it's it was a real problem because... Um, like the technical side of things, Yeah, right? I mean, because, first of all, their nomen the climbing nomenclature is all screwed up. I mean, they're soloing and there's free soloing. And the movie we're and calling freeing. it... free, yeah. yeah. And... and and we were calling the movie Solo for a while until Han Solo came along and stole the title. <laughs> Thank God, because this is a better title. But, but also, you had to explain the difference then. You know, um, soloing is climbing with a rope, but not uh, only to only for protection. Free solo is climbing without a rope at all. And the beginning was going to be this explanation of soloing versus free soloing and everything. But then we realized you, you just the you crane over the the cliff and you look down at him and you get it <laughs> no explanation <laughs> needed you know and then the woman asks him you know is this this looks crazy you know yeah one of the sequences that i i was really impressed with the way you worked it into the story was about alex's family life and death of his father and his you know his relationship with his mother because that was a, that, that must have been a hard hard thing to work in well, it was a th decision about how far to go. Mm -hmm. That was another one where we, we kind of backed off after a while. You know, you kind of set it up, you kind of understood, and you didn't want to go any farther. There was a fair amount of shooting with his mother that we decided not to go with. Uh, I mean, she, I, I think we got a balance that was right with her. Mm -hmm. um, it was fascinating to have him go into the MRI and see that spectrum. Yeah, or and and how to get to that was a problem for a long time. <laughs> Out of Morocco seemed to be the only, the only hope. But why Morocco? Why are we in Morocco? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a problem for the longest time. Poor Alex. I mean, they were in Morocco for about three weeks. Our whole crew. I mean, it was a huge investment, and yeah, that was a did choice. Some historic free solos in Morocco that no one will ever know about <laughs> because it didn't fit in the story. <laughs> Was that a difficult choice? Were there scenes where you're just like, we we can't, we don't, where does I it mean, fit? I mean, it felt terrible, uh, yeah. but, but there was difficult. no choice. <laughs> I think we knew the problem, and then it was like, how much could you do? And and usually you couldn't do that much, so you had to keep coming back. Coming back to, you know, why he was there to help him get to El Cap and to focus on Tommy and his relationship and let, let them explain the difficulties of these things and uh, and talk about, you know, people who didn't make it. Yeah, it was an opportunity to talk it. about that. Yeah. And how come this guy could? Well, let's look at his brain, which is how we got to the brain yeah. MRI. Mm -hmm. Now, it all sounds very measured, <laughs> your approach. I'm just wondering, were there moments where you're like, uh, uh, it felt chaotic or... You were lost, or all the time. You're lost all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I mean, if you feel like you have 
you know where you're going, then you can keep hammering away at it, and eventually yeah. you'll get it. Each crew member in the filmmaking process brings a new intelligence as they come on board. For instance, in the post-production phase, supervising sound editor Deborah Wallach worked to enrich the immersive experience of the film by creating a soundscape layered with original sound effects. For re-recording mixers Tom Fleischman and Rick Schnupp, balancing and equalizing all of the sound elements can solve key issues, but can also expose weaknesses in the soundtrack. Tom, Deborah, and Rick describe some of the surprises they found and the obstacles they overcame in the mix stage. Free Solo came along, and it was a long time. I mean, the, you know, day one of the mix, I sit down and I start working on it. And I mean, I had seen it, but I, I hadn't really kept up with how the cut was progressing. So, you know, the schedule moved back and back. And finally, you know, I was kind of worried that I was going to run out of time. It was like two weeks before we premiered, right? It was yeah. something like insane. Yeah. You know, the, the mix was what, 10 or 12 days? I think it was like 10 days. Just to give people a point of comparison for a fictional feature of 90 minutes, how many days or weeks would you have? Five, six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas 10 days for a doc is like quite too. luxurious. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, working on a feature film is really different from either a documentary or like a television series or something like that. Those schedules are much, much more limited. The budgets are all smaller. So they just, they don't have the, the budget to budget for that long a period of, of time to mix. So, you, you know, you've got to find a way to, to do what you need to do to address the problems that are presented to you in the material and do it on a schedule so that you can get it all done. You know, before you run out of time and the filmmakers run out of money. Working on a documentary like this, it's, it's, you never really know what the tracks are going to be like until you get them in front of you. And then it's just a matter of, you know, doing your best to get as much out of it as you can. Free Solo is a great example of how much detail work you can get into a film in that short schedule. And there's a lot of very important Foley work that was done in this film. All of the little movements of his feet and his fingers and the ropes and the, the jingle of the carabiners and all, all of that stuff it was sweetened with Foley. And if you play it at the wrong level, it just sounds completely fake. But I think that we had one very big kind of creative technical challenge, which was that our audio wasn't recorded particularly well, especially when Alex is riding in the van and it sounds terrible. With and the window. with the window open <laughs> and it's only a camera mic or something. And Alex can't act. Like, it's not like he could ADR it. And he probably tried. Yeah, we had some. 18 we times tried or something. And we tried. And then when we put it in, everything <laughs> felt fake. So we had to go back to the original production tracks and that was really empowering for us as filmmakers in some way, where we had tried all these tools that we, you know, you to try to replace it and make it better, but we just had to go back emotionally to what was authentic mm -hmm. and real. But still, we had the talent on our team to just make it work in this context. I think that's what I mean by, like, all the little pieces and all the craft that went into it was really special. You know, in something like Free Solo... Dialogue is everything, you know, in terms of dialogue when there's ADR, when there's not, but also just making it, first of all, 
so you're not ever taken out of the moment. Documentaries, you're not working with actors. Even though we talk about performance, you know, they're not performing. It just happens that somebody has better energy or somebody reads better in, the, in that kind of uh, environment. With Chai, each of her films have been very different and require different sensibilities in a way. And there's different levels of difficulty and fun. You know, it depends on what it was. Um, this was particularly hard because unlike Meru, which had avalanches and ice creeks and picks and all kinds of things that I could play with, Sound-wise, elements, I mean, it was just immense, enormous, right? This, you had to keep it real, you know? And so there'd be production sound on things, but often, you know, needed help because it either wasn't good or pieces needed to be filled in. And we always had things to work with. I remember when we first started this ADR, I had the brilliant idea thinking, well, maybe we'll have Alex do some breaths in case we need them, which, by the way, we never used those at all, but... Still, you're thinking ahead, and we had to get him, you know, with a medicine ball, doing 500 push-ups to get him out of breath because he was so strong. He would never lose his, his breath. And I think in this case, you needed to have some trials of ADR because they're still editing, trying to figure out what is usable, what isn't, how to get emotion and thought across, and, mm-hmm. you know, what is the story. So that became part of one uh one element, that's how we started, actually. The first things were like that. And then eventually I get the film, and Bob says, okay, make it sound good. That's my instruction. <laughs> end, end of story. Make end of story, good. make it sound good. <laughs> do whatever you need to do. But it gets to a good point in that, like, in I, I think like, the fundamental difference between fiction and nonfiction is in nonfiction, you really don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's a state that you live in, right? Yeah. Um, and that's also where the most wonderful surprises and moments and poignant moments come from. You're also bound by this idea of authenticity and truth. Yeah. And, you know, so in fiction, I think you can often make up for that. You know, you, mm. you are filling in what they've failed to do. The ADR is common. You know, in nonfiction, the rules are a little more, you know, we are held to a sort of different code. And so that was always what's, like, so difficult, I think, about audio on a nonfiction film is we throw this mess at our crew, and they have to make it seem entirely real working with bits and pieces of the real thing yeah i mean there are a lot of like the process is quite layered deborah and i had time because the schedule pushed we had about a week that she and i were just doing pre-dubs she was just giving me sound effects and i would sweeten them with my own effects or i would say you know oh there's a car there we got to get a car or she would say oh i forgot a bird there's a bird here you know and so things were constantly flying back and forth or the picture would change. Oh, now there's a shot with him with a cast on one foot and a flip-flop on the other. So there's no sound effect with a right foot cast boot and a left foot flip-flop. So, you know, the Foley guys did great work. And then, you know, a shot will all of a sudden be sped up or slowed down that wasn't before. And I'm like, wait, that Foley's not right anymore. What happened? You know? So the, it was like a constant, just keep your eye on it really closely. <laughs> you don't know when... You know, things are going to be different. The stuff that Deborah added was mainly just winds and backgrounds, cars. There were some swooshes that I put in that I wasn't sure would work. Like when we push in on the animation, that big thing in, you know. But, yeah, having a week of pre-dub was really nice because you're not, with a 10-day mix, you're so focused on dialogue and music 
Right. Having oh, well, you the could, effects just kind of sit nicely. Yeah. We were sitting side by side, and I'd be like working out the dialogue and trying to dig out syllables. And, and while I'm doing that, Rick is paying attention to the Foley, keeping an eye on sync and making sure nothing's out of balance. And he didn't slow me down. That was, you know, working with him is a lot different from a lot of other effects mixers that I've worked with because very often, you know, I'll have to stop and let them do their thing. And in this case, I just kept going and he was keeping up with me somehow, you know. And generally what I'll do is I'll turn off the music and just concentrate on the dialogue. And while I'm doing that, he's balancing the sound effects against that dialogue. And... You know, once I get get it pretty close, it's really not going to change a whole lot. And then the music comes in and we play it and we make adjustments. You know, sometimes I'll have to adjust the music to fit the dialogue or adjust the dialogue to fit the music. And then the sound effects have to be adjusted to that balance. So you're um, always kind of uh, adjusting and pushing and pulling and, you know, until it all kind of, until the shape comes. And what we would play back e either in the morning or at night. Right. I mean, we would work, you know, it's very difficult for a director, most directors, I think, to sit through the mixing process because it can really be very boring for them. Um, it's, it, it's, you know, working dialogue is, is painstaking. Not so much in documentaries because we have to move faster, but even then, it, it, you lose perspective. You know, if, if they're sitting there watching me EQing a line of dialogue and I'm playing it 50 times over and over again, trying to get the right, you know, timber or whatever, or yeah. the right balance, or trying to match an ADR line to a production line, that can become very, very tedious for someone who's not actually involved in the process and doing it. Um, so what we try to do is have some time on our own, maybe with the editor, maybe not, maybe it's just us. And we try and put something together that makes sense to us. And then we, you know, then Bob will come in, you know, in the afternoon and we'll play back what we put together in the morning. I mean, I learned yeah. pretty quickly with Tommy is that you just don't say anything. You listen, you take notes, and then you speak up later. At, at some point, I'll turn around and I'll yeah. say, okay, look, take a yeah. look at this and yeah. see. You know, and then, and then they'll comment and, you know, yeah. can we get a little more out of this music mm -hmm. here? Or, you know, just little things like that. Mm -hmm. Which make a huge difference, like that phone call at the end, where we could never, like... Oh, that was so know. important. And then now, after it was mixed, like it, it became this kind of lovely thing that happens. And you couldn't hear that. <laughs> I mean, That's it was just, I mean. like, screaming. Like, it was... I mean, like, people... I mean, people were telling us not to use it. That's how bad it was. Mm -hmm. Really. And you, you had to you use had to. it. So, I mean, it had to be fixed. I'm a little, yeah, I'm a little shocked still. <laughs> I guess yeah. I did, yeah. yeah. No, no, he totally fixed it. I mean, it was, it was amazing when it transpired in the edit, in the, in the mix. I was like, whoa. Like, we all were like, my gosh, it happened. It was something we yeah, never counted I mean, on. Like, problem. we kind of already given up, but knew yeah. that we had to do it. Once Free Solo hit the festival circuit beginning at Telluride, then won an audience award at the Toronto Film Festival, it began a world tour that resulted in the film's directors and producers winning multiple international awards, including an Oscar and a BAFTA. Many of the key crew also won awards, including an Ace Eddie for picture editor Bob Eisenhart, a Motion Picture Sound Editors Award for sound supervisor Deborah Wallach, and a Cinema Audio Society Award for Tom Fleischman and Rick Schnupp. 
Director Chai Vasarheli, sound editor Bob Eisenhart, and re-recording mixer Tom Fleischman describe the wave of popularity that grew from the initial set of screenings. I remember uh, Chai sent me a link to the film, an early cut, and I watched it and I was like, wow. You know, I don't care what I have to do, I want to do this film. You know, I, I'm going to work out my schedule somehow so that this is going to work because I knew this film was going to be groundbreaking. Even the earlier cut, which was considerably different from what they wound up with, it was so engaging and so gripping that I just knew that this audiences were going to like flip out over this thing. And I wanted to be a part of it. And I loved working with Chai. We'd done three films before, but I always looked forward to working with Chai and Jimmy and uh, so and Bob. I mean, if I could just say one thing, but Tommy really has come to be our our a true kind of almost litmus test or barometer because we are in this hole, right? Mm -hmm. And we have some documentary peers who are looking at our stuff. You know, we show it to some close advisors who we really trust, but not necessarily like people outside of our genre with real cinematic chops, right? Mm -hmm. And I always like, you know, when we come in there, I'm like, you know, Tommy's very understated. So I'm always kind of waiting to see what the comment is going to be about the music because, like, that's number one. If it can pass, if Tommy thinks that the score is good, like, we're okay. You know, well, that's all, that was the second part of the challenge for me yeah. was working that score and making it work with the dialogue and balancing everything um, and, and having it play so that it wasn't overwhelming the story, it was supporting the story when it needed to, and and then, you know, bl blossoming when it needed to. Right. And that's always tricky, uh, you know, music and dialogue, it's, it, and, you know, hats off to, to Marco, because the instrumentation and the arrangement was such that it allowed of the score, the melodies, uh, to play under dialogue that was sometimes very difficult to understand. The hard part about the film and the score was like this final climb and finding the right balance mm -hmm. between how to tell that story of the climb, how to keep the story moving along up that mountain. Mm -hmm. And the intimacy. I mean, that's the balance also because the sound was moving between the naturalistic part of it and the music. I feel like we kept... The, the, the final, when he finally gets to the top. Yeah when the tension is released. And Marco Beltrani's score was absolutely gorgeous yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, it was triumphant, and it really well, brought... Yeah, that's what real... I was starting to say. What, what took that kind of yeah. thing is the music in this film, yeah. which is so... It, it takes you along. I remember when we sat uh, in, in the editing room and you heard something, and, and at first I wasn't sure that, you know, music through that whole piece, and I'm thinking that. Ah. And then you're describing just wanting a little bit more. I mean... It's nice to see it develop. I think that my effects worked well with his score, you know. But I would have to say also that this is a real testament to the picture editing of the film, yeah. in that the way that Bob Eisenhardt is able to work with the music and work with the composer and myself was, I mean, I often think that like for big composers, working on documentaries must be a nightmare because they come in and we're like, don't do anything. Don't be over the top. <laughs> right. Use one instrument, and it should sound like Alexander Desplat and the Prophet. Right. Okay. And maybe Cliff Martinez. Like, yeah. you know, we can throw some of that in. And then these guys come in, and they really are the best of the best. And Marco Petrami was a real prince in how he worked with us, because ultimately the score got quite big. Um, yeah. And that's not at all where we started. Yeah. But ultimately, it really worked because 
in picture editing, Bob set up every one of those pitches that you watched. Mm-hmm. So you could engage with the hardest parts. You felt it. It was tense. And then the sound comes in and helps kind of underline that tension, give us relief for a moment. But the framework had been set already. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that was, Alex brought such craft in what he did as a climber mm. that almost to honor the work that was done by Alex, yeah. we had to do our best. Which, even though we had this score, I mean, for the final climb, it's 20 minutes of music, you know. And and Marco did a remarkable job pulling back on the boulder problem. He pulls way back, and we just hear the breathing and the, the grabbing of the, the various holds. Because we're holding our own breath. So it's like, <laughs> you know, at that moment, right, it's so good to hear you. Yeah, that say, he still breathes because we're not breathing. At that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, like, I'm always like, does it pass Tommy's test? Like, are we going to be okay? Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, yep. Yeah. (laughs) That that was very reassuring. Yeah. (laughs) You only really know, I think, when you get into a room of 600 people and the film is out in the world. Traditionally, it's quite difficult to release a doc in the fall. So it was kind of like, let's get it out as fast as possible. Um, but, I mean, Free Soul ended up being the movement that ran for the most months sequentially of 2018, period. Wow. I mean, it, it's, it's like one of the, I think it was in theaters for six months. You know, at first, That's its widest nice. was yeah, like 200. Six days, and then know? it went to 500 <laughs> screens in its fourth month. Like, I mean, it was one of those things where it was re-released at IMAX twice. Yeah, it was just, who knew? When you thought it was over, something else would happen. You know, like, it was, there was a lull and it opened in England, and it went crazy in England. And then IMAX agreed to bring it out. It was yeah. the 16th week of release that yeah, IMAX, IMAX really came out. Great. And they were like, okay, we're going to put it on this many screens. Oh, it was 160 it was screens the, yeah, it was the, first the first time, time and then they because it was Aquaman. And then it did so well, IMAX was like, you know what? We're going to bring it back now to 500 screens. And that was just, like, unheard of a documentary in its, like, fifth month well, of release. It's a different kind of film on IMAX, so to have... Both things is really quite nice. I mean, I'm glad it opened if on a big but smaller screen so you could feel the intimacy of it. Uh, but then to kind of get the spectacle of IMAX is great also. So, I mean, and you don't get that kind of opportunity. And the real irony is that more people saw this film on that Angelica you know, screen <laughs> on Houston Street than really anywhere else. It played there for, I would say, 16 weeks, right? It was something like that. Mm. And... The people who saw that movie there, like Bradley Cooper took Anna Winter to see a free solo at, an, at the Angelica with the subway running underneath. And people were still moved by this tiny screen. And I always come back to this fact that, yes, it won all these awards, but it was very gratifying to see, like, our crew win these awards, you know, the people who worked on this film. And every time you're like, we're done, it, something else would happen, you know. And I think Alex, too, like... Alex, well, Alex probably <laughs> assumes it's like this all the time. I mean, I can't be like, Alex, this doesn't happen. <laughs> this doesn't happen. And then when we finally won the Oscar, like, Alex was like, oh, man, like, it really happened. <laughs> <laughs> this is a big deal. Yeah. I, I, I liked his approach when I said, oh, boy, that red carpet took a long time. He said... You know, I think we got it down now. Next time, I'm going to do it this way. <laughs> it's the same way as he was climbing. You know, I worked it this way this time, but I figured out how to do it better. <laughs> but the real thing about Alex, I think, was that this person, who's always been quite misunderstood and like kind of teased and written off as being a particular way, suddenly had this vehicle, this film, that translated him to a wide audience. 
And then suddenly, like, thousands of people who have seen this film who kind of understand him. But I think Alex, it just, it's become about connection and courage as opposed to fear. by Frame is presented by Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. It's produced by me, Isabel Sederni. Frame by Frame is supported by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, where you can find copies and transcripts of each Frame by Frame episode archived in their oral history project. This session was recorded by Phil Castellano at Soundtrack New York. Big thanks to Yana Collins-Lehman, Kelsey Schuyler, Jen Lane, Angelique Ibarra, and Azare Lyman for their ongoing support. Excerpts from the score for Free Solo are by composer Marco Beltrami. Stay tuned for upcoming sessions of Frame by Frame with editor James Wilcox as we explore the essential relationship and working dynamics between the picture editor and the assistant editors in building the feature film Hillbilly Elegy, directed by Ron Howard. 